Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. My name is Kate Cavanaugh, and I am coming at you from a late Friday evening. I know, aren't I just the most thrilling? And I felt really compelled to do this intro right now. I I sometimes record my intros immediately after a guest. Sometimes I ruminate for a couple of days, but a couple of hours after recording this interview, I received in an envelope from my husband who had just been in Denver visiting the butcher shop, uh, a little package of all these slides of my father. And I mean, they're, they're old Kodak slides that one of my second cousins who I've never met dropped off. And I was reminded in that, that where we come from, where we come from means something. And I was recently listening to John Wineland speak about our karma and how we can heal that and how our karma sometimes manifests as the ways in which we relate to the world that we learned from our parents and from our grandparents. And so there's this lineage of our our way of relating. And oftentimes it's in need of healing. And within that, I started thinking about where Western daughters came from. And so for those of you that might be new to the podcast, I own a butcher shop in Denver, Colorado called Western Daughters Butcher Shop, where we were a whole animal butcher shop that specializes in regenerative 100% grass fed and finished beef and lamb and pasture raised pork and chicken. And We've been in business for 10 years and I've told the story of our origin so many times that that for a time I grew tired of it. But today I was reminded of that story in the, in these slides because they're they're slides of my father and my second cousin's father and they shared, you know, their their mothers were sisters. And this story about the western daughters was that in the very late 1800s, my grandmother and her husband and their five daughters crossed the ocean from Ireland to come live in the United States. And after that harrowing journey, they arrived in Zenopal, Pennsylvania, and William Cavanaugh, my grandmother's father, promptly died of the kidneys. Polycystic kidney disease runs in my family. And my great-grandmother was there, and she had her five girls at the turn of the century, and she was trying to figure out what she was going to do. And she decided that she would cross the prairie, cross the, you know, the Mississippi River, cross all of these places in a covered wagon to get to Colorado with these five girls. And it's in that same pioneering spirit that we opened up Western Daughters, and and that name was very much in honor of 
those women that made this wild journey out West because to for, to forge a new life. And in this episode, we're going to talk a lot about this idea of homecoming, what it means to come home, which is a concept that Wes Jackson, who wrote Consulting the Genius of This Place or Becoming Native to This Place, often discussed. And you can find him talking about it with both Wendell and Mary Berry, this idea of homecoming. And I don't think that homecoming is just within the context of coming home to the home that you knew. It's not just co- about the kids of farmers coming back to rural America. Sometimes it's about going to a place and really digging in and building some roots there and becoming connected to that landscape, to that ecosystem, to the the communities both above and below ground that occupy that space. And so I wanted to mention this idea of, of homecoming. I wanted to share this quote. I share another quote at the beginning of our interview. But this is, this is from Wes Jackson in Becoming Native to This Place. The universities now offer only one serious major, upward mobility. Little attention is paid to educating the young to return home or to go some other place and dig in. There is no such thing as a homecoming major. But what if the universities were asked to ask seriously what it would mean to have as our national goal becoming native in this place, this continent? We are unlikely to achieve anything close to sustainability in any area unless we work for the broader goal of becoming native in the modern world. And that means becoming native to our places in a coherent community that is in turn embedded in the ecological realities of its surrounding landscape. And I love that. I love that that concept of homecoming and becoming embedded in the ecological realities of our surrounding landscape. And I think that you'll find throughout this interview that when we become embedded in those realities and we begin to pluck at the strings in service to those ecological realities, that other strings get plucked, like those of communities both above and below ground. I wanted to speak a little bit about our guest today, and if you're curious, Will Harris of White Oak Pastures, and if you don't know him, then I, I suggest you, you, you look him up. He is an incredible force to be reckoned with, but I, I feel that a lot of you might know who Will is, and in my lifetime, I've gotten to sit down with some really incredible people to have discussions, and there is often a gravity that comes with that, and, and the same is true of this podcast and getting to sit down with Will. It was a real honor to share a space with him, and I oh, I hope I did this podcast well. I'm not sure I did the best job, but I did the best that I could and know that. Will Harris's work and what they have done with White Oak Pastures and their practices are somewhat legendary within this space. And you can find many podcasts as well as their YouTube, all of which are linked in the show notes about those practices. And I chose not to focus on that because there is so much information about that out there. And there are so many other nuanced pieces of White Oak Pastures that I wanted to dive into. And so you'll have to forgive me for skipping over their their beautiful and incredible practices. Everyone, this man raises over 10 species and he can rattle them off in quick order. And all 
in a regenerative model, a holistic planned model. They're a savory hub down in Bluffton, Georgia. And so I really encourage you to seek out other information about their practices and and to forgive me that I really wanted to dig into this idea of community and where we come from and the resiliency that we build within that context. And I've been thinking a lot about community up here as we moved into the sticks and as we build our own sense of community. And it's become something that is really precious and important to me that I want this area, that I want my neighbors, that I want this teeny tiny town that I'm a part of. The the town I technically live in doesn't even have a post office. It's seated. It's post office. And so we have to drive to the next town over to post our mail. And I want to dig in. I want to, I want to dig into this place. I want to come home in this way. And so this really guided this podcast as I found what Will Harris has done in what was the poorest town in the United States of America and the community that he has built there just by, just by paying attention to animal welfare. I don't have much housekeeping on this one. I really just want you to dive into Will Harris's work. And if this podcast resonated with you, if you are out there and you want to build community and you were touched by the complete transparency with which Will shares the mission, the the financial hurdles, and the work of White Oak Pastures, will you do me a favor and share this podcast with a friend, with a family member, post it to your social media. It really does a lot to help people find not just this podcast, but to find the information that is contained within this podcast. And I think this one with Will Harris is one for the books. I don't want to keep you waiting a moment longer. So without further ado, here is the incredible Will Harris, who you will not want to stop listening to. It's been a long time since we last met. I mean, it's been over, it's been over seven years, I think, since we last sat down together. What was that? Was, was that was that online or was it at a conference? Was that a conference? Was that a conference? It was at a slow food conference in Denver in 2015, and I had to look it up to know that. Yeah, they ran my ass off. Uh, slow foods really. You know, I, I went from being thinking that was just a great organization to really being disillusioned with them. That meatless Monday thing, you know, and they made they made no differentiation between livestock production done right and livestock production done wrong. It's just bad. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think this was a really big, I think we're both pariahs from that organization because I wanted to raise my meat and eat it too. And I mean, that's, that's the biggest part of my diet and we don't, we don't do meatless Monday over here. You know, know, so it is, it is at the very least, it is uh, uh, debatable that meat is bad for you and the environment. I mean, I can argue endlessly that it's good for both. But we know sugar's bad. Yes, we do. Sugar's bad, but we don't have sugarless Saturday. It's a good point. Whiskey in excess is bad. We don't have whiskey unless it's a wineless Wednesday. No. We don't fucking have meatless Monday. And and it's highly debatable. Uh, At at the very least, it's debatable. It's probably, uh, I I think there's enough research saying it's just not, not right. 
eat less meat. Eat less meat. Well, now, how do you know how much meat I need to eat? How do you know that? Uh, I was on a panel recently with some people who were not pro-animal agriculture. They all talk about less meat, less meat, less meat. And I finally I said, you know, I guess I'm the only son of a bitch on this panel that doesn't know how much meat I should eat. Everybody else who knows how much meat, they mm-hmm. know. Oh, yeah. Apparently they have they have some guidelines. I think what you said is so interesting. We don't have a wineless and whiskeyless Wednesday, and here we're taking the only food group that we've eaten throughout human history. I mean, for time immemorial, the one constant has been meat, and that's what we should take out of our diet. Refined sugar's been around how long? Not very long at all. People were sweetening stuff with honey and you know, molasses and. But now we got refined sugar. You know, it's the only thing you can go in Starbucks and get for free. It's the sugar. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the worst thing in there. Have you read Gary Tubbs' The Case Against Sugar? I think that he presents the most beautiful argument in this book. Who is that? Gary Tubbs. It's a book called The Case Against Sugar. I think it's an excellent because one of the things is these epidemiological nutrition studies. I mean, well, they're not that great at really looking at what's best for human health. Pretty reductive. Well, I have a, I, one of my favorite things about doing this podcast is I get to immerse myself in the work of my guests. And I've spent the last couple of weeks listening to you on podcasts and, reading things that you said, and I kind of feel like I'm sitting with the man of the hour here after your your Bill Gates commentary. I was going to say that was suck pretty bad the last two weeks for you. <laughs> no, it was great. I loved it. Uh, I loved watching the the dust you were stirring up. It's important dust to stir up. And I, I found, I went back to this quote that I love, and I wondered if I might read it just to open up. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's from Wes Jackson, who runs the Land Institute in in Kansas, uh, and it's from his book, Becoming Native to This Place. To resettle the countryside is a practical necessity for everyone, including people who continue to live in cities. This resettlement will be no small matter. It will have to be carried out by those who have a pioneering spirit, by those who see the necessity of such a dispersal, by those intelligent enough and knowledgeable enough about its necessity that they will have the staying power. What they will be up against is formidable, a society dominated by the rich and powerful, offering temptations to embrace the extractive economy that keeps our incomes and the global non-renewable resources flowing their way. And... I thought about this as, as you've had this sort of viral moment talking, talking to Bill Gates. And I think what you're speaking to is something so beautiful, which is the increasing centralization and creation of linear technical, technological systems within farming that are a very poor lens for understanding the complexity of ecosystems and Mother Nature cycles. You know, I'm, I'm so glad you laid out with that. So there are three things that we think we're good at. Only, only three things. We think we're good at regenerative land management. We think we're good at compassionate animal welfare. And we think we're good at re-enriching or enriching this rural economy that we have here. And when we, you know, we're not, when I'm challenged on things like nutrient density of my product or the health attributes or food safety and all those things, I stay out of it. 
because I'm not expert in those things. The three things I mentioned, I think we're pretty good at. And Me too. the one we talk about the least is the the uh, re enrichment of the rural economy. That that is you know, the the, the uh, climate change has put so much emphasis on regenerative land management, and that's great. And the uh, animal welfare movement of the past has brought what we do to our livestock into into focus. So those things have gotten more traction than the impoverishment of rural America. Yes. And I so clearly see, because of where I live and what I do, how industrial, centralized, commoditized agriculture has rendered rural America economically irrelevant. Yes. They need it anymore. And when anything becomes irrelevant, it atrophies. Yes. And that's happening, you know, it's 50 states. And it's not a southern phenomenon, not a western phenomenon. From any city you want to go to, you don't have to go very far in a direction to find uh, economic decay because agriculture became wrong. Yes. So that's what something we've worked on, something we've made a lot of progress on, something we're very proud of. That was when I was looking through what you've done, which is astounding in terms of the ecological restoration and in terms of animal welfare. But I was really struck by what you've done for Bluffton, Georgia, and by this idea that I have always been enchanted with, which is, again, of Wes Jackson's, which is this idea of homecoming. And he really believed that there should be a homecoming major at universities that teaches us how to come either back to the farm, which is something I know that you did as a fifth generation or to dig into a rural place and to really come home and to support these smaller communities that represent what can be a decentralized system and a very rich fabric. And I know that this is something my husband and I have done. We live, we live out in the sticks and I, and I love it. And I think it's important to come home to this space and to learn how to rebuild Rural America. Yeah, I would. I would. Everything you said is right. Is I'm right on with you. But I would restate. You said what you have done in Bluffton, and really, I won't take that credit. You know, I'll take credit for everything I've done. A little bit of stuff I hadn't done, but I didn't do that. The the changes that I made to our farm, this farm has been in my family for over a century and a half. The changes I made to the land management system was very intentional. You know, I mean, we were doing what we were doing. We were successful at it. We made money. I, I had no debt. You know, we, were, we weren't rich people, but you know, we lived very comfortably and, and, and had no debt. And But I didn't like what we were doing to, to the land, so I, I, I studied it and made decisions on how to change it and intentionally changed it. Some things worked. Some things didn't. What didn't work, I changed it again. We worked hard on that. Similarly with animal welfare. You know, I knew what we were doing. I didn't like it. I studied ways to do it differently. Some things implemented it. Some things worked. Some things didn't. What didn't, I re- rethought it. The impact to the town, the community, was unintentional. You know, I, when, uh, when we made the changes that we made to the farm, the town became relevant again. You know, before I... 25, six, seven years ago, I had three or four employees, minimum wage employees. I was the only decision maker on the farm. 
uh, sold a million dollars worth of live cattle a year. And, and, and as I said, made a, a, a reasonable profit doing it. It was okay. Today, we've got 180-something employees. Uh, our payroll is $100,000 every Friday. In, in the poorest county in America, based on Wikipedia in 2020, in terms of household income, poorest county in America. So, you know, when we brought all those uh, people here, and, and a lot of them are, a tremendous percentage of them are young, education, educated, passionate people. You paid them a living wage, and they needed a place to eat and drink and sleep and live and play. And we built those things to accommodate them. All of a sudden, we had a nice town where it previously had been literally a ghost town. Yeah. The, uh, t- 15 years ago, the only thing you could buy in Bluffton, Georgia, was a postage stamp, a little post office. And it was open about two hours a day, and I couldn't catch it open. But, yeah. Uh, you know, now we, we got I mean, we got a store, a restaurant, and lodging, and RV park, and a, a, a nonprofit for education, which I'll tell you more about. And, you know, there's a lot of little things going on. And, and please understand when I'm, uh, if I'm bragging, when I'm bragging about these things, I'm not bragging about the financial success story. White Oak Pastures is a very break-even-ish business. Yeah, as as is the case for, I think, most farms and in the meat business in general. Yeah, we sell, we sell uh, $25, $6 million worth of product a year. Uh, payroll, as I just said, uh, uh, $5 million a year. But it's a break-even-ish business. Yeah. I, I joke that if I decided I'd give everybody a 10% raise today across the board, everybody's 10% raise, we would literally lose money next year. That that would be enough to tip it. Yeah. Do you think within that, I mean, you said that you sought out animal welfare practices, that that was kind of the first thing that you looked at to change. But when I think about sustainability or when I think about holistic management, you know, you're, you're, looking at the whole sometimes you're looking at parts of the whole but i think just in the in the spirit of john muir where you know every one thing is connected to the other when you begin to really pluck at that string that is animal welfare suddenly you're plucking at this string that is you know restoration of the ecosystem and restoration of the community even if you don't fully know it in that moment it's exactly how it happened with me uh, when i uh, I was loading out a, a load of cattle uh, one day, and uh, it just hit me that the welfare, this is bad. And I've done it a thousand times. That day, I just said, I don't like this, and uh, started thinking about it. And very, just almost immediately, it went to the land. So, you know, that's, if this sucks, that sucks worse. So. Yeah. And then, I mean, oh. Then how do you? What's that first step to learning how to learning learning to change? I think that one of my biggest teachers. We've only been here on the farm is three years. Is that you have to be willing to adapt to pivot? You know, this is something I've learned in business. And what is that moment? How do you begin to pivot? Because you guys had been pretty conventional, and here you are making a really wide U-turn. Yeah, we were uber conventional. I mean, we 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 were technology users, and I'm gonna say abusers. You know, I 
If it said give them a pint, I put a quart. If it said give them a cc, I gave them three cc's, which is probably why the unintentional consequences became apparent to me. And as far as the transition goes, uh, I think it happens different ways to different people. In my case, I am not much of a, not much of a planner. You know, I, I never business plans and things like that. We, we run a pretty big business, but it's, it's pretty cowboy as far as, and, and, and the transition was, was very cowboy. I just, I wanted the time, quit doing things I didn't like anymore. I like that. I like that methodology. Just lead them with your gut. Yeah. And, uh, and, and and every time we uh, gave up something, mostly we're talking about technologies that we were abusing or misusing. Every time I give up a technology, it would change a lot of things, and we'd have to adapt and figure it out. And we seldom figured it out the first time. And we, you know, we it's been a true evolution and continuing to evolve. You know, we. Uh, if we do the same thing twice, I think something's wrong. We, 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 we hadn't thought through this thing. We hadn't learned all we should have learned last time. So, but it, it was truly a, a decade or two of giving up things. I'm not going to do that no more. I'm not going to do that no more. We're not going to do that no more. I think this is, I mean, this gets back a little bit at that Bill Gates thing that we've become so reliant on technologies in farming that we've created this sort of technocratic food system and abandoned the ultimate technology that nature gives us. And I think that that is something that when you do the work that you do, you become a lifelong student of that technology that is nature. And you forfeit some of these some of these more short-term thinking man-made technologies. Is that yeah, so to me to, to me the way it seems is that uh, we we human beings are the first species that I know of that was able to use technology. And it worked so well on so many things that we applied it to everything. There's something hubris in us that thinks we can do it better than nature. Yes. We just believe that. And I, and I mean all of us. We think there's a better way. So we talk in savory, in the Savory Institute, we talk a lot about the difference in a complex system and a complicated system. You know, this, this computer we're talking on across the country is a very complicated system, and it's incredible. It's amazing. It's magic. But a lot of things are happening in it to make us be able to see each other, talk to each other. And if one component fails, it ain't going to work. You know, the screen goes black, and you can't hear me anymore. That's, that's a complicated system. It's a factory system. This is what's linear, like a factory. A complex system is like your body or this farm. And there's a lot of things going on to make it work, too. It's a miracle. But if one thing ceases to operate, it's going to morph. And other things are going, it's going to keep operating in a, in a fashion, a different fashion. And when we apply that, and that's, that's a cyclical system as opposed to linear. Re- re- reductive science works great on linear, complicated systems. It doesn't, it, when you apply it to complex cyclical systems, there are unintended consequences. And, you, and this farm 
when we applied the factory model to this farm, there were unintended consequences. And, and, the, and we didn't see them for a long time. You know, this goes back to my dad's generation. But the, the, the unintended consequences fell on the backs of the, the welfare of the animals and the, the uh, productivity of the land and the community. And those unintended consequences were unrecognized for over half a century. You might, uh, uh, my dad never realized that the changes he implemented was damaging the land and now. You know, earlier when we were speaking about the community being an unintended, the building of Bluffton, Georgia, the rebuilding of it being an unintended consequence of you seeking out a better way to practice welfare for animals and, and then regenerative agriculture. What do you think the difference is in these, huh, I don't quite know how to ask this question, but we have two sets of unintended consequences. The unintended consequences of this linear technological-based system and then the, the unintended consequences of a system built on resilience. And I'm wondering... Oh, just how we frame unintended consequences within this. It's not a, it's not a great question. I, I, I think it's, I'll take a swing at that. So I think that the goal of uh, the factory model has been efficiency. It's yes. all about efficiency. We, we, in the linear factory model, we are willing to sacrifice everything for efficiency. And that's what we've done. And I think of uh, efficiency and resiliency as being yin and yang. And you, you, as you get became become more and more scaled up, linear, efficient, you become less and less cyclical, resilient. And, and you know, we have just taken that efficiency to such an extreme that we've taken all the resiliency out of the system. So when you have uh, a traumatic weather event or a pandemic or a uh, uh, computer uh, spyware, well, you know, all this stuff that happens, you know, <laughs> then you know, there's, no, there's no resilience. You know, they, 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 everything fails. And, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know who it's going to be. On one side, on one hand, we are... Uh, hopelessly addicted to obscenely cheap and wastefully <laughs> abundant food. Yes, and and we're addicted to it. You know, it's just like a, like any other addiction. It's designed for us to be addicted to it too. I mean, it's been engineered to be hyper palatable to be something that we want to continue to consume. And, and we don't want to spend a very small percentage of our income to to, to have this, and then and, and we. We take it for granted and we waste it. That's, 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 that's the way we were raised. It's been like that for a long time. We were generationally into it, a uh, number of generations into it. On the other hand, you know, ad, uh, adverse things are, are happening because we have given up the resiliency, and, and these things cause pain, and nothing brings about change like pain. In fact, in fact, very seldom is there change without pain. And uh, I don't necessarily think that. So, so we were early at the party in regenerative 
land management. We, the, the, the term regenerative land management wasn't around. Sustainability wasn't around way back then. It took 25 more years ago. And, and we didn't do it. You know, we, we did it for the reasons I said. I just didn't like stuff anymore. So I, I, I didn't do it anymore. It, the whole sustainability, sustainable now, regenerative now, resilience, is, is catching some traction. But make no mistake, it's still very niche. Yes. Very, you, know, you and I are preaching to the choir here. Yes, you know, yes we are. Me and you and the 14 people that might listen to this podcast are all an echo chamber to each other. So, you know, will this, and I run my business like it was a niche market. You know, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't want, I don't think of myself as feeding the world or leading a movement that will eventually feed the world. I don't think that. I'm feeding my community. And I really, right now, we ship, I don't like it, we ship product all over the country. You know, online store, FedEx, UPS. I don't like that way of doing business. We, we, I'm glad we got it. I got to, I got to monetize what I produce and not enough people in Bluffton, Georgia to eat what I produce. So we ship it, but I hope, I got a hope, I hope that my trade territory shrinks and shrinks and shrinks because other people, other bubbles, I thought we'd see a tsunami, but we're not. But we might see bubbles. And I hope that eventually there'll be a white oak pastures or two or three in every ag county in the country, and they'll feed their surrounding area. You know, I'm, I'm in the as we talked about earlier, I'm in a very impoverished, rural, sparsely populated area. We're probably more sparsely populated than any area uh, east of Mississippi, and, and it's impoverished. So I don't have a local, a good local market. But, you know, it's, I'm uh, three hours from Atlanta. It's a big market. I'm uh, uh, five hours from Orlando, Florida. You know, I shouldn't be shipping. I shouldn't be shipping to to Pennsylvania. But people in Pennsylvania, in many cases, don't have a local farm. So we, they want it, and I need to market it, so we ship it to them. But my hope for the future is that there's more and more of us operating in a smaller, smaller area. You know, a, a difference in us and the, the linear producers is we're not trying to scale this up to be a uh, nationwide or, or multinational we're bigger now than I ever intended to be, and I don't care if we never get any bigger. Uh, I, I, I had to build slaughter capacity on my farm because I, I didn't have another choice. And that caused us to grow the business bigger than I really intended to. And I, I, got, to, I got to do that because I got, to, I got to, to cash flow this $7 million I spent for processing capacity. But we're not planning on increasing anything. We just want to market what we need to monetize to cover what we've uh, we've invested. You know, one of the things that I see so much in in the bigger corporate model of of creating food is that there's this idea in linear systems that growth should 
and can be perpetual, that it's just growth in perpetuity. When, you know, when we understand something about nature, we know that there's, there's a limit to growth, whether it's a, a population of deer that outstrips the nutrient density of the land that they're on and they're going to start starving. I mean, there are natural limits built within that system. And I think, you know, you said something that's really important. We, this this yin and yang of resiliency and efficiency. And I think that we have lost, and I pulled this because I've heard you say that before, that resiliency from a dictionary definition is the ability of something to return to its original size and shape after being compressed or an ability to recover from or adjust easily to adversity or change. And I think something we see in this centralized system is if you visualize it like a pyramid, as we go up to the top where there are fewer and fewer players, there's less and less ability to pivot, to shift, to change because you're just one point as opposed to having this spread out big foundation. And so in that, you know, and in your desire for there to be a white oak pastures in every agricultural community. What do you think it will take for us to to come home in that way that Wes Jackson is talking about? Sadly, pain. Pain. Yes. I'm sorry. That's what it is. It's not Don't be sorry. Because, because we are, as I said earlier, addicted to this destructive food system, production and distribution system that we're in, then we're going to stay in it because it's very difficult to, uh, you know, not, not only is my food more expensive and harder to access, it's harder to find. You know, the, the, the biggest nemesis any of us have out here that are trying to do this right is greenwashed product. And, and the most consumers don't have the bandwidth. They, you know, they're smart people. They can figure it out. They just don't have the bandwidth to know what is the authentic and what is greenwashed. And, and, and they're not going to devote that man with doing it until they feel pain. And the pain would be some health issue or some meteorological event, at least things we talked about earlier, that come from the non-resilient system. And I, is that going to happen or not? I, I think so eventually in some shape, form, or fashion. I don't know what it's going to look like. Uh, you know, it, it probably won't be a, it, me. Or, so I got two children, seven grandchildren, and everybody works on the farm. And, you know, I, 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 this is slightly off topic, but related to that, when you said uh, that about perpetual growth, that resonated with me. And I heard somebody mention something like that similar. And I, it made me think about how we run this farm compared to a multinational corporate publicly traded company. And we have our, our meeting in this little office here, this 160-year-old little office here, uh, every Wednesday at 1.30. And the seven of us who run this farm meet and we talk about everything. We start out, we have an agenda. And the first thing on is our bank balance, how much money we got or ain't got. And then we go down and talk about raises and everything else. We never talk about growth. We talk about resilience. You would compare that to, a, 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 no need to name them, but the, the, the big companies that run, that feed the world. You know, it's all about growth. 
Yes. Only about growth. I mean, it's a single and it's a short-term metric too. I think that they're not looking at growth in a long-term and all of the implications that that might have, that when you look at growth long-term, you begin to see a bigger picture, but it is just the short-term profits that they are beholden to their investors or... Well, I mean, by my definition, it's almost based on the quarter report or the annual report. You know, the numbers are here, this, we think generationally because everything we've got is in this entity, in a big publicly traded company, people are in and out every day. So there is no, in fact, you're, you're uh, uh, disincentivized to think about long term. Yes. Because you're in and out every day. You know, what's this next quarter report look like? Yeah. You know? so it's, it's, it's a really shitty system. Really it is. Shitty. It is. And there's no skin. There's no blood in the game. There's none of that, you know, being, hmm, being accountable to the next generation or three or four or six generations from now. And I think that that, like you said, it disincentivizes good practices. Well, I got, I got friends who are uh, sophisticated business people, you know, MBAs and CPAs and very accomplished people. And we have business discussions, and they simply think I'm crazy as hell, and they're probably right. But you know, why would you have that amount of capital tied up to make that kind of margin? It's just, it's, nobody wants stock in that. No, no. I mean, we've experienced that ourselves running the butcher shop for the last 10 years is that we work on, I don't know, one to 2% margins and our farmers work on one to 2% margins. And well, I, can, I can tell you that uh, here, these are actual numbers, White Oak Pastures, about $25 million in volume. Uh, we've got about almost $30 million in assets, about $9 million in debt. And if we make two or $300,000, over annual, uh, we think we think we probably must. We didn't pay somebody or something. Something happened. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, but that doesn't, yeah, creates a different incentive. Yeah, but but we think generationally, and generationally, I'm very comfortable with what we do. In the short run, it scares me to death. You know, having this much asset involved with that low profit margin. It's like driving an automobile 200 miles an hour on an eight-foot-wide road. I mean, you can do it. You can do it if something bad doesn't happen. But if a deer runs out in front of you, it's game over. And that's, that's, that's how this feels in the short run. But generationally, I feel very good about what I'm doing for uh, my children and grandchildren. Do you think that long-term view uh, titrates your risk tolerance in this moment, in that in oh, that yeah, fast, tight car? Well, I don't know exactly what titrate means, but that's <laughs> <laughs> why I do it. I mean, I, you know, to, if I, uh, my, 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 my CPA says that my, I have an excessive appetite for risk. <laughs> and I really don't think I do. It's just that I, I do what I got to do to get where I need to go. And, and he looks at it at a much shorter window than, than, than I look at. And, and he, you know, he very well may be right. I mean, what we do is high risk. I mean, we, can, you know, we can lose the farm. And it's, uh, when I started, when I ceased operating conventionally 
I had zero debt. I didn't have as many assets, but I had zero debt and a consistent uh, profit every single year. We were, it wasn't a, a seven-digit number, but I had good profits every year. And and you know, we were a dream for my micro will do business with us because it's you know a lot of assets, no debt, and a, and a consistent cash flow. And fast forward, we spent uh, I got seven point two million dollars worth of processing facilities here. And you know, we bought land, we uh, increased the animal population dramatically. And, you know, and, and when we sell now, we got a lot of uh, account receivables, and we got a lot of uh, you know, when I was shipping truckloads of cows out west, there was no accounts. The wire was in the bank. Uh, so it's just, you know, just, just so much more risk involved in this. Yeah. But yeah. But I, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a whiner. I'm not complaining about it. I, no. uh, I feel good about what we do. I just hope that deer doesn't run out in front of me while I'm driving 200 miles an hour on the safe little wide route. No, and I think I really appreciate you sharing this because I think that financial sustainability isn't something that we often bring to the table when we're talking about environmental sustainability or we're talking about community sustainability that that this piece which is important in a long-term vision it doesn't get talked about often enough and it's hard yeah. and, uh, and, and conventional lending does not recognize what we're doing here. i yep. mean it, it, it uh you know, the, uh, I, I, but that's changed a little bit. Have you heard of replant capital? I have you know, not. It's a new, a new deal. I think I might have been their first customer. I just did a refinance with them. And I'm, I'm, I don't work for them. I'm not plugging them. I'm just we're talking about financials. And uh, they, uh, the refinance, I, all my credit was good old boy, small town bank credit. You know, I, I want to buy a piece of land. So I went to this little bank and financed it. And I need to buy build buildings, so I went to this little bank and financed it. And it was just kind of a mess. And now we've got it. The replant understands regenerative agriculture. And it's a much more attractive financial package than I could have got from conventional lending. I, I missed a piece about replant capital. And I think that this is really important because we don't have traditional places to go to get capital to build these spaces within this system. Yeah, it's a, a, a it's not what should be this brand spanking new, but I'm excited about it. The, uh, they took a lot of my my portfolio of uh, good old boy loans with small town banks and consolidated them and it's gonna save us a lot of money in uh, uh, interest but also just amortization, you know, to, to stretch stretch things out over on a more reasonable period yeah. of time. Yeah. I want to come back to something you said that uh, is something I'm really passionate about, which is that one of the biggest capital-intensive ventures on White Oak Pastures was integrating slaughter or processing. And I really feel, you know, I've been a butcher for 12 years now, and I really think that this is a piece that we miss in the system, right? That that we we love to celebrate the steak at the end and we love to celebrate the grass and the animal, but this piece is a very important piece. And I think that when we're talking about decentralization, it is incredibly important because this is what those smaller processors are what help us get out from under the thumbs of which I think, you know, most of the country, there are four processors that, that run most of the plants. And so. 
So we talk about there being three legs on the stool. There's production, I've been the pasture, and that's the part everybody enjoys, everybody wants to be part of, and they think that's what regenerative farming, resilient farming, let's call it resilient. They think that resilient resilient farming is animal impact on the land, you know, prescribed grazing, all these things that we talk about, and, and, and they're great, and we love them, and they're like magic. And they think that's all there is to it. And I've, I've seen people go broke focused on that part of it and not focusing on the rest, the other two legs of the stool, the rest of it. And it won't work. It, you, you put value into the product you can't extract back out, and you go broke. So when you make the decision, when a, a farmer or rancher makes a decision to enter into that regenerative land management, they've got to think down the road what comes next because consumers don't buy cows and hogs and sheep. They buy beef and pork and lamb. And being yes. able to make that that value addition, that's what it is, a value addition. Yes. Is, is essential. You, you got to handle that part. You can't do a good job raising the live animal and say, well, what am I going to do now? That's got to be handled up front. And then that, you're still not through because you've got to get market access. You've got to be able to, to, to monetize it. You can only monetize it through market access. And I, I make it, and that's being able to find consumers that will, you know, we who farm in Bluffton, Georgia, we farm in the zip codes that are impoverished. And we've got to get this to the zip codes that can pay us for it. And, and it's not, they're not the same place. And they're usually a long way away. So uh, uh, that's, and I, I worry, you know, it's just like, it's like going into the hill. So you, you, the hill in front of you is being able to manage this farm like I want to. That's all you can see is that hill. So you climb that hill, and you get to the top of it, and you think you're through, and you say, well, there's another hill. And all I can see is the processing. So you climb that hill, and you think, when I get that done, it's, it's done. And you get up there and say, oh, market access. There's another hill there. And you got to climb all three hills. Is there another hill after market access? I'm I'm curious. Well, uh, <laughs> well <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I wasn't going to get into it, but kind of, and that is the administration and regulation and those kind of things. Uh, you know, one, you know, we got a, uh, you know, like most farmers for the first, I graduated from the University of Georgia in 1976. And for the next 20 years, I farmed like all my neighbors, and I paid my bills on the kitchen table, you know, writing the checks. And I had three, two, three, four minimum wage employees. You know, there wasn't an accounting department. And there wasn't an HR department. And there wasn't an insurance department. And there wasn't a customer service department. And there wasn't a wasn't a what. Fast forward to now, we got all those things. And, and we didn't get them because I wore them. We got them because that's that next hill. You, know, you uh, once you once you get the, the 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 production right and the processing right and the market access right, you'll find that you got a, a lot of uh, regulation and administration's got to be dealt with by somebody. And you're probably not big enough to do it all yourself. I wouldn't. You know, I was the only decision maker on this farm. Longer than I should have been. You know, I just kept adding employees, and everybody worked for Will. 
And you know, I probably, by the time I started putting some structure to this business, I probably had 30 or 40 employees. And everybody was lined up wanting to talk to me. And I couldn't get anything done because I was directly supervising too many people. And t- today we've got seven directors. I, I, I own the company. But we've got seven directors that run it. I'm one of them. Supervising 25 managers to supervise 170 or so employees. And, and, and it's still, a, yeah, it's a half-time job. It's 12 hours, seven days a week. It's half-time. It's an organism. I mean, it's become it's become its own ecosystem of a business, and and probably has tended towards much complexity, not complication, but complexity in having all of these these individuals within that ecosystem. You know, I went from being a a very small part of that huge food system that feeds the world to being a very tiny little separate food system. And, and you know, and, and all these things I've talked about sounds like the hardships of that. But I, I, I think it's so. I'm much rather be where I am now than where I used to be. Uh, with all the tight margins and uh, lack of cash and all these things, and I'm bemoaning. Uh, you know, when the when the pandemic was at its peak and. Nobody was running their pocket. We never missed a day. You know, we never missed a day. When people, when the farmers were slaughtering pigs and chickens because of we, you know, my, my pigs and chickens didn't know anything was going on. Uh, you know, we we we're certainly not bulletproof. We're bullet resistant. I mean, I think that's part of what we're building in a regenerative, smaller system that's more decentralized is, I mean, it's not being bulletproof, but it's, it's again, that ability to, to pivot, that ability to change course. And I think that when you have an organism and you have people that are, I mean, you have this, this core of people that are helping to make this system resilient and you've built in the steps of having processing, which I, 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 again, can't stress how vital that is and how much we've seen just the destruction of the small processor um, and that point at which we add value to product, that value-added piece. And so, I, I mean, this this really is about building more resilient systems, not just within the context of nature, but within the context of business. Yeah, I feel compelled to say this. Uh, I agree with what you said, and the, the, the shortage of processing plants is a, a, a short stave in the barrel. But now I worry all this these uh, this funding that's being put out there for small processing plants, mm-hmm. and fix them. Uh, I think that's great, but I really don't want people to forget about market access. You know, yeah. like I want to spend a fortune climbing that second hill. Right. And when they, they, they get up there and find out, well, no market access. And market access is hard. And, and it, I think that a lot of people are going to go broke building processing plants. There's plenty of livestock to process. They, they can run the processing plant well, but the, that market access for the finished product when they get through with it is, uh, I mean, that's the blood, that, that's the monetization. That's what keeps it going. That pumps, that pumps through the organism. 
I heard you say once that when you really got started with this iteration of White Oak Pastures, that there was a lot of demand for your product and that now you are having to market it. You are having to find customers. And that's, and, and that's a function of greenwashing. You know, there, there's more demand today than there was back then. But back then, there was not greenwashed product. You know, the the big multinational meat and poultry companies were just selling beef and pork and chicken and lamb. Now they're selling pastured, humane, you know, and they use all the, the adjectives. All the buzzwords. All the buzzwords. And you, know, and you and I could both sit down and, and, and draw up a list of the green washers, and they look just alike. And we know who they are. Yes. But consumers don't know who they are. And but they do so much better job. But, you, know, you know how much I spend on, on marketing, on advertising? Zero. We don't, we don't have any money to spend on that. No. You know, how, much, how much money do you think a, a big multinational meat, poultry, food company spends on? That's a huge percentage of their, of their gross. Yes, and absolutely. They, and you know, guess who's got the loudest voice? And guess who can do the best job talking about it? You know, the, the only... The sword and shield that we have against greenwashing. So greenwashing, we can agree, is the number one nemesis of this kind of farm. Yes. I mean, it's, 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 it's taking a lot of people out and it's hurting me. The only sword and shield we've got is authenticity and transparency. You know, and, you know, and, and, and we've, these things, these, these customer-facing things we've done, there's lodging and RV park. It was just to get people to come here. And we're very remote, hard to get people here. It's 50 miles to Holiday Inn. You know, uh, 50 miles to a little bitty regional airport. Just don't go anywhere. You know, it's hard to get people here. Yeah. So we have to really work hard to get people here because that's the only market they need that. And when we get them here, we'll show them anything they want to see. You know, thank God for the social media, which I don't even know how to use, but I, I have a daughter that does. And it allows people to come to White Oak Pastures and see without having to come to White Oak Pastures. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a blessing. You know, you said something earlier. You said that you and me sitting here talking, we're we're preaching to the choir. And I know that a lot of my listeners are are within this this line of work, and it is preaching to the choir. And when you're talking about greenwashing, and and you have an intelligent consumer base, but you have millions and billions of dollars that are put into creating these facades, and and they really are just facades, right? They lack they lack transparency. There is an obfuscation, and there is a they're very opaque but how do we how do we break out of preaching to the choir how do we break out of this echo chamber and reach those consumers that are that do buy into the the marketing dollars that go into greenwashing you know, I, don't, I don't know that you know i'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, uh, you know I, I do have a, a two daughters and two in-laws in the business and one of my one of my daughters particularly is I don't know that she particularly likes the messaging, marketing, social media, but she saw that that's what we needed, and she has embraced it, and I think she's doing good with it. But, you know, all you can do is just keep telling your story and being willing to show any and all. You know, there's a, a one company in particular I refer to as the pariah of regenerative movement because they're 
so good at greenwashing their product, and I know where they get that shit from. And but you know, their their reputation among consumers is way up there. And you know, I'd, I'd love to talk about it more openly, but they've got a, a, a floor of lawyers <laughs> in, yes. their, in their corporate office. You got here. You got. I don't fear those people, but I'm aware that that they will come after your ass. Yeah, I'm aware of that too. That's something that we've talked a lot about, and uh, that that's another thing. They're not just paying for marketing; they're paying for lawyers, and they're paying to protect their reputation. Mm-hmm. That they want. That they want. You know how many yeah. how many people do you and I know that started family operations and then sold cashed out and sold it to one of the big companies. And, and 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 the big company bought it to get that brand, you know, to get that. They were they were buying that reputation. Mm-hmm. They were buying the authenticity. Buying the buying the uh, image or the uh, Im- uh, mirage of authenticity. You know, it, yeah. It, it, because I think that there is, I think that to speak to that, I believe that there is a hunger for authenticity. There is a hunger for transparency, especially in a world that has very little transparency. We want to touch real things. And I think that you spoke to that with the amount of people that come to visit White Oak Pastures to see firsthand what you do. And I think that when we engage at that level, when we begin to see how our food is raised and to, to, peel back that curtain and to get a peek behind it, I I hope, I'm going to say I hope, I hope that that connection point begins to change things. And, and as you've built this space for, uh, we could call it agritourism or just coming to stay, coming to talk to you, coming to see what you do, do you think that that has shifted the way that those people saw the food system and then were able to go out and spread that by word of mouth. Yeah, I, well, I hope so, and I think so. We, uh, you know, I should tell you that the, thing, the, thing, the things we've got that are agritourism-type things, store and lodging, those things, don't make any money. You know, they're, we're delighted if they come close to breaking even. Uh, but it's our messaging. You know, it's our advertising. You know, we don't, you can't buy ads in national publications. And, and, so they, yeah. and, and, and if, they, if, if I did, it wouldn't be nearly as slick as one that was produced by the being uh, all food companies. No, I, I think so. Uh, we'll talk about this a minute. I mean, we, we almost got on a minute ago. So you, you, you heard the statistics that uh, uh, farmers get, I think, I think like 14.3 or 14.7 cents of every uh, consumer dollar. Yeah, that's a USDA number, and it you know, it's, it varies a lot. From yeah, I thought it I thought it was about seven to eleven cents. I, I think fourteen cents might be generous. By commodity, I think it might be something like that. But the last one I saw was fourteen. It, it don't matter. It's a little bit. It's a little bit. And uh, and that's that's a very interesting number. Maybe when you start to unpack it, you know, I'd love, and and I don't think it's enough. And I think farmers get the short shaft on that deal. But, and if I sell something online or at my store up there or my restaurant, I get 100 cents of the dollar. But it's not as good as it sounds because one thing that we forget is those, I don't want to ever come off as defending big food and big ag. 
please don't mistake what I'm about to say for that. I won't. But a lot of costs are externalized to those people, and then they're further externalized to citizens and taxpayers. You know, uh, uh, if you're a commodity farmer in this country, in any state of the union, and if you're growing anything, any commodity, I don't care if it's oranges or hogs or soybeans or eggs, and you get 48,000 pounds of it. You can pick up the phone and call Big Ag, and they'll send a truck and get it. And an EFT, a funds transfer, show up in, the, in your bank account or a check will come in the mail. Well, uh, that's so convenient. And it, and it, it is addictive that, to farmers to, yes. to not have to screw with value addition and finding a market, gaining market access, all these things that, that we do and you do, I guess, and then... But those dollars that I get 100% of, you know, we, we, we spend $5 million of it hiring people a year, hiring people in Western Georgia. And we, you know, the money turns right here, whereas that if we sell it to Big Ag, that money goes to Wall Street or Silicon Valley or Germany or mm-hmm. China or mm-hmm. wherever. So uh, there's a, a, a lot. Of, we, we could talk all day about that. And, and, and the, the other things that are externalized or bad or that are really tragic are all that plastic in the ocean and all that nitrogen phosphorus that washes down the, the Mississippi River to the Gulf of Mexico and all these, and I don't even want to get into health because that's not a strength of mine, but all these, these negative unintended consequences that come from the industrialization, commoditization, centralization are the expenses are externalized in Paul's own society in general. So it, it's uh, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot wrong with this. And it's not real obvious. No. And I think you said something, you said something I really love, which is it's externalized to the taxpayers. It's externalized in ways that we don't even see that we are paying for it, that, that it is costing us in, in these metrics that maybe you can't measure just within that system, but there are these costs associated with that. And I think one of the things you said, you know, my husband and I have run a butcher shop for the last 10 years and 50 cents of every dollar you spend at our butcher shop goes directly back to the farmer or the rancher that it came from. And that, that over the years has meant $5 million going back into farmers and ranchers along the front range in just 10 years. And I'm, I'm very proud of that because it keeps that money within the community. And I think that that becomes, you now I often think about this idea of currency as a current, just like with water and it's flowing, it's flowing to somewhere. And so whether it's flowing to these big corporations, to Wall Street, to Germany, to China, or whether it's flowing and, and then building within your community. And I think that this gets back to that, that that money goes back out into your community, which then begins to build Bluffton, Georgia, or, you know, whatever rural municipal municipality, you know, people that are listening to this are in. And that slowly begins to rebuild that community and the 
the culture there. And I think it's this idea that like agriculture, we got to keep the culture in there. And part of that is the community. Yeah. Yeah. We say, uh, uh, the cult in agriculture. <laughs> yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah. And so I just, I really appreciate that. Like you keep hundred cents, you know, you keep, you keep all that money within the community. So we, uh, a thing I'll tell you because it's just happened is uh, about a year and a half ago, we were contacted by a, a major publisher. Well, wound up being uh, Penguin Random House, and they bought the book rights to White Oak Pastures, and uh, they hired a, a delightful young woman from California to write the book, and uh, she has written it. And uh, they returned, or she turned the, I guess, draft manuscript into them uh, last week. So I think it takes a long time off the bat, but I'm, I'm, uh, I got a lot of trepidation about how that's going to look. You know, we, we spent, she and I spent countless hours on the phone. You know, me, me, me writing the book is out of question. I've never ever read about three books. So <laughs> but, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how, how that works out for us. I have a question and tell me if you don't want to answer this. This wasn't this wasn't really on my radar, but I think you've become you've become a big a big figure in this field. I think a lot of a lot of farmers, a lot of ranchers know your name. A lot of people are looking at what you're doing at White Oak Pastures as a as a group, not just you as Will Harris. And I just wonder how that's been for you in some ways and 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 what that means for you. Well, uh, I think it's probably a little stated. I think that uh, uh, you know, the, I don't think we have done what we've done any better than many, many, many other people. I mean, we did it. We started earlier. You know, yes. we, we were one of the first girls at the party, and uh, and, and we have done it on a, a little greater scale with a little uh, more vertical integration than most. And that was my necessity. That was, uh, we, I, didn't want, I didn't want to operate at, at this scale. It was just uncomfortable to me. But when I ran out of local processing capacity and they were unwilling to expand, I had to build. And you, as you know, you can't build a little bitty processing plant that operates cost-effectively. It's got to be a certain size. Yes. So when I built it that certain size, I had to put a certain amount of head of cows and hogs and sheep through it to make it work. Then I had to find a market for it. So it caused us to, to grow bigger than we ever intended to. And, and, and that comes with trepidation. You know, we, we don't want a company that's too big for us to run. You know, we don't want a company that's so big we got to hire a CEO to run it for us. And, and at some point, you have to start being careful about that. You said, okay, you know, I, uh, I can I, I can do this, yeah, I can do that, yeah, I can do that. And next thing you know, it's it's so big, you got to hire somebody to run your business for you. And that's that's what corporate America does. We, we that's not that's what we want to not be. So um, you know, as far as uh, I mean, I don't I don't I don't like to leave the farm much. You know, I used to go to conferences and things, and and I don't go to them much anymore. And, and I'm, I'm 67. It's not because I'm too old. I'm in good health. I feel good. I just don't want to leave the farm. You know, I'm, uh, I'm afraid somebody will say something funny and I won't be here to hear it. So. 
But, but we do, uh, our way of giving back is to invite people here. And we've got, uh, to, to help with that, we've got a, uh, an intern program I'm very proud of. Uh, we we uh, bring six interns per quarter, four times a year, so 24 a year through here, three month training program. And then we've got some, some people I'm really proud of who've done that, gone on. We founded a, uh, a nonprofit last year, a 501c3 called a Center for Agricultural Resilience. And it's not a how-to farm educational program. I don't think how-to, I don't, I don't like how-to farm books. I don't like how-to farm educational systems because I think it's too, too complex for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what this, the, what, what the uh, CFAR, we call it, Central Choir Group Resilience, is, is to give, help people think about regenerative agriculture differently. To, to, to uh, not, not, you know, I, I paid a lot of money one time to go to a session called uh, Grazing for Advanced Graziers or something like that. They, we spent half a day learning how to put up an electric fence. So, you know, <laughs> That ain't, that, ain't, that ain't advanced. That's a YouTube no. video. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we don't try to teach people how to farm. I think that that's, I think it's ridiculous to try to teach people how to farm with a book or a one, two, three day session. If you want to learn how to farm, you find you a farmer that you like, preferably in your ecosystem. You go work for them for a while. And uh, but but we did we did found this nonprofit because we saw the need of helping people think about it differently. Got to deal with the the three legs on the stool kind of deal. I was telling you about with the hills. We talk a lot about those kinds of things. That you know, there sadly there are people out there that are making their living. So there's a there is a demand to learn about regenerative farming. There's a, yes. a demand for that. And a lot of people have stepped up and become experts in regenerative farming. My best friend is Gabe Brown in North Dakota. I bet you know of him. Yes, I do. And we laugh about the fact, where the hell were all these people 25 years ago? (laughs) (laughs) And when I I meet somebody these days that have got a uh, marketing there, consultancy or education or writing books like that's just what is the depth of your experience in regenerative agriculture how long you've been doing it what scale you've been doing it on and usually you find it's pretty shallow so uh but there's some great ones out there like like gabe i mean there are others out there you really gotta if you go, if you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to come to your farm and consult. I'm not in that business. You know, I don't want, I don't, I don't want to get on the speaking circuit. Uh, I, I, I'm too. Uh, my English is not very good. I'm profoundly southern, and uh, I use a lot of expletives, so I can't write stuff. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with that. I mean, I think you're, you're very articulate. And, yeah, I mean, um, very, I, I'm, very careful about using my expletives. You can use expletives here. Um, I think I think everybody who's listening has heard them. I think that what you're doing with CFAR, because I don't think, I mean, I, and I just from my incredibly limited experience, you can't you can't learn how to farm without farming, right? That that it's <laughs> it, that it's just 
doing it and and failing and trying again and failing some more and trying again and and learning how to cultivate a sense for the ecosystem and a relationship with the land and your own intuition and your own ability to make mistakes and get back up again. And and, and I could be wrong about that. No, you can show that you can show that five-year-old videos of how to ride a bike without training wheels over and over and over again. And he's still gonna skin his knees. And yeah. You don't have to skin knees. You got knee scars. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but teaching people how to understand some of the complexities of this, especially what you've mentioned around market access and really what they're up against in terms of, of making farming successful. Because I think that for, for there to be more white oak pastures in the world, we have to, again, I mean, the, this comes back again to this idea of they have to be financially sustainable. They have to be able to find and access that market. They have to be able to, you know, get, get a cow from the field to people's plates. And, you know, they, as we said earlier, the production part is the easy part and the fun part. That's the part that just titillates everybody. We all enjoy it. We all want to move the cows. Everybody wants to do that. You know, not many people want to cut meat up. I know what you do for a living. It's just not many people get passionate about doing that. Not many people get passionate about uh, the, that that customer service side of marketing. And, and I and, and I, I respect that because I don't do it. I'm, I'm a farmer. You know, I, I had I not. I've been able to hire people to do these things that are outside my skill set, outside my wheelhouse, you know, it, it wouldn't happen for us. Yeah. You did say at the beginning, though, that there were two things that you knew. One of them was cows and the other was people. And so I think that part of knowing people is also knowing when you need to hire the right ones. Yeah. And, 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 and truly, like any, like any business, uh, you got to be able to get, if you don't get things done through other people, the business will never be any bigger than you are. Yeah. I love that. I want to pivot just just briefly, and I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you about this. One of the things that I end up talking to a lot of different people about on this podcast is this coming back to looking at things through a cyclical lens that that we have been linear and mechanistic and reductionist for so long and that part of coming back to holistic management or coming back to viewing these things is embracing cycles and this is something that that I've heard you talk about and you talk about it so beautifully you know you said at one point the way i used to farm breaks the cycles of nature but that you've come back to the space where where you're embracing the cycle of birth and growth and death and decay back into birth and growth and death and decay and i think that coming home to cycles is a big part of a big part of this for me anyway well that's the fundamental that's so uh, I referenced Gabe uh, a minute ago, and I will again. <clears throat> so Gabe Brown, we're about the same age. We're both very industrial farmers. We both came to this. He in Bismarck, North Dakota. Me in Bluffton, Georgia. About as different an ecosystems as you would find on this 48, this, you know, this, this country. <clears throat> you know, uh, I farm an ancient seabed. He farms uh, glacial soil. Mm-hmm. I got a pretty much 52-week year grazing cycle. He's got a very short but highly productive grazing cycle. There's just so many differences that we discuss. 
But when you get out of the fundamentals, it's the same. You know, there's the the uh, the cycles of nature that you reference. You know, there's a yeah, the, the carbon cycle that we talk about way too much. Yeah, we're but, tunnel vision. Tunnel vision on that one. Way too much. I mean, yes. it's, it's, it's as important as any of the rest of the cycles, but it's no more important than any of the other cycles. But we, we just, I'm tired. I hate to say, I hate to be so critical, but we're taking away from everything else to just talk about carbon. Yes. You know, your buddy Bill Gates or somebody is going to invent, invent a machine that will suck carbon out of the air and put it in a, a bar. And they say, listen, we, we, this is the machine. It's, uh, and that's, that's, that's all right. And we will have missed water cycles and microbial cycles and all of the other cycles so that, that, that we don't even know about. So, you know, we, we, yeah. know, we know about the carbon cycle. And I, I point it out every day. There's an LCA on our website, Life Cycle Assessment, on, on the White Oak Pastures website under the uh, Environmental Stewardship section that will, talk, that will tell you all you need to know about that. It's a beautiful, I've read it, it's beautiful. There's a, you know, the, the water cycle you mentioned. You know, uh, when, if I can get a five, there's some videos on our, I don't know where they are, but they're running somewhere, that shows a five inch rain on our farm and our farm and our industrial neighbor's farm. And that's all you need to know about the water cycle. It is, and it is wild to watch. We'll, we'll link to it. I mean, to see this clear water and not very much of it coming off of white oak pastures and just seeing uh, just buckets of cloudy topsoil filled water coming off of the industrial side. That's one of the microphone drop moments. Is yes. I'm, I'm, I'm through arguing with you about the water cycle. There it is right there. You can't yes. Too stupid to talk. Proof is in the pudding. So there's the, uh, the microbial cycle. You know, I... We're talking about having 10 species here on this farm, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, right? The, 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 the 11th species, microbes in the soil. You know, that's, that's what we really got to be raising. Yes. That's the microbial cycle. There's the, the, the energy cycle. You know, we, we endeavor to have as many different, I, I got a 52-week growing season, so I keep green things in my pasture 52 weeks a year. Wow. Uh, they're different things. So, you know, having that energy that uh, from the sun cycle through my soil, through the microbes, to, is, is, is so important. Uh, you, know, I, you know, we used to raise corn, 110-day growing season down here, and then the, the other 300-and-something days, nothing, right? So the, the energy cycle, the mineral cycle, you know, the yeah, you know, microbes sucking uh, potassium and phosphate and iron and sulfur from those rocks. Yes. And trading it to that that plant for the exudates that it, you know, symbiosis, mutual benefit, everybody's winning here. Uh, on and on cycles, the grazing cycle is a, a macro cycle. You know, those, those perennial plant, perennial grasses and forbs, photosynthesizing and you know, bringing greenhouse gases down and sequestering them in the soil and, and, and the cattle, sheep, and goats eating them off and defecating and microbes taking all these cycles. It just goes on and on. And those are the fundamentals. Those are things you can teach. It would be the same in China or, or wherever else you would. You know, you know, uh, if you know how to train a bird dog, you can train bird dogs in South Georgia. 
and they flew you to Russia. You couldn't talk to those people, but you could train a bird dog. <laughs> That's a fundamental. Those are fundamental. Those cycles of nature are fundamental. I like that perspective a lot. And I, I, I really like that you mentioned that as as farmers, I mean, really what you're raising is that microbial community. Like that is, I mean, that is the bread and butter of, of the soil and, and what it means to farm. And, and with 1 billion microorganisms in a single teaspoon of soil, uh, that is by far and large, uh, your, your largest, uh, I guess we can call them the, the tiny livestock member. You, you mentioned, you represent birth, growth, death, decay, you know, that, you know, we, uh, we have a, a red meat slaughter plant and a poultry slaughter plant here on the farm. And those two slaughter plants generate about nine tons of packing plant waste wow. five days a week. Now you know it's wow. it's not as much it's it's not as much as it sounds like because you know it's probably eighty percent water. Mm-hmm. But still, it's a it's a it's a dump truck load of stuff. Yes. Then we have a dump truck. And then we. Haul it to a remote place on the farm, and we move it, you know, and, and we compost it. We take that packing plant waste, which I, I don't think it's waste; it's a nutrient stream. Yes, it is. Okay, and we compost it with a, a carbaceous material, the DOT and asphalt. We let them dump vegetative material they chip up here on the farm, and peanut shells and whatever else. And we compost it with that packing plant waste, and we make just wonderful compost. And we spread, and it's bones in there. It's, it's, it takes, I mean, it may take a decade for that calcium and phosphate and whatever else in those bones to, to break down, but they'll break down. And if you think, if you think generationally, 10 years is nothing. So we, uh, we spread that back on the land, and it just grows incredible grass and forbs and, and beautiful, a beautiful system. Yes, and it was part of the land before it made its way to that compost heap. Like, like that land grew those bones and that blood and those feathers that are all, you know, then decaying back into nourishment for the land that nourished those bodies. So we, you know, we used to, before I, when I was an industrial cattleman, we'd have a, a real good spot for whatever reasons in the past where the grass grew well. And we'd say, that's where the buffalo died. And... Uh, of course, I buffalo here in hundreds and hundreds of years, but a buffalo died on every acre of land I got every year. So we spread that compost back out a couple of tons per acre. We got to spread them. Didn't we? Yeah, and I mean it's just incredible to see how much that leads back into life. And I, as we kind of, I want to make sure that we wrap up and and that we're. I'm thinking about your time, but I was thinking about something that you. You said earlier, you know, in trying to feed the world, we've just kind of gotten to these empty, I mean, they're, they're almost empty calories is what I want to call it. it we've lost lots of nutrient density. And I don't just mean nutrient density in terms of, of fat and protein and minerals and vitamins, but nutrient density in terms of our communities, in terms of, of just sort of these watered down ideas of how we run businesses. Right, that there's just this, uh, you know, and I think it it really springs almost from Earl Butts, you know, get big or get out, and that we just want to produce cheaply and efficiently. And I think within that, we've lost nutrient density in our land and in our communities, most of all. And I really am just floored at the story of what has happened within your community and and how that's changed and how 
how we have to hold people in this equation of sustainability too, that we have to think about communities, that we have to think about people. I, I had this while I referenced Earl Butts. The difference in you and I is you read, he said it. I heard him say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was farming at the time. Yeah. What did you, what did you think? Like, how did that? I, I thought, hell yeah. I mean, I was, yeah. he was talking to me. I was the industrial farmer at the time. I was all over it. I mean, I've, you know, I've I, I really, you know, I've come full cycle on that whole deal. I, I remember the quote, and I remember thinking, yeah, that's exactly right, Earl. You know, you mentioned the thing about the nutrient density and all that, and I certainly believe those things, but I don't talk about them. You know, I got, we got people like my friend Diana Rogers to, to, to do that for us. You know, to me, to me, nothing sounds more stupid and ostentatious than a farmer talking about nutrient density and health and culinary uh, attributes. And, you know, I, I just want to say, shut up and talk about what you know about. Let somebody else have that. And, you know, we've got such great spokesmen, you know, like, like Diana, but others, and you're not going to name them, you know, that can, can address that for us with credibility. I want to say one thing about the community building. Uh, you know, God only knows how much money we spend in economic development. You know, trying to, I mean, it's just, it's just it's huge. I mean, not just one entity doing it. There's so many different entities in government have this economic development initiative or initiatives. You know, what was done here was done by a C student with bank debt. Not a not a well financed government entity or philanthropic effort or I mean, how many how many uh, philanthropic efforts are you up for community development trying to to save your it's, it, they're, they're, they're legion and, yeah. and, and it's not working no but here and there's other places but this is one over you got a, a very very basic C student literally. I mean, that proud C student. You and me both. Yeah, with with uh, with you know with uh, borrowed money, you know, money borrowed from a local bank that had to be paid back with interest. So it's not how much it's and it's because we accidentally stumbled upon the real cause of rural economic decay, and that's the economic irrelevance that been brought about by industrial commoditized centralized farming. So once the problem was identified, it didn't take much brains and money to fix it. Uh, the problem is, we, we, the thing is, we've been addressing the wrong problem. Do you think we're perpetuating that in the way that we have billionaires buying up farmland and continuing to centralize it and continuing to uh, desertify bankrupt rural America? Uh, yeah, I do. And, uh, I'll, I'll say this. You mentioned that little back and forth. So I, I don't read social media, but my daughter does. And she asked, occasionally she'll ask me to address something, you know, a, a pervasive question or something. And she asked me to address uh, Bill Gates' mind of so much land. So, so I did. And and the result was kind of a hate fest on Bill Gates. And I have not studied Bill Gates. I know who he is. 
you know, I, I don't I don't like the way he does business. You know, I don't like what I what I don't like about Bill Gates is his answer to all the problems of the world is more technology. That's the only thing. I mean, the other things may be true about him. But I don't know and don't care. But the answer, you know, the answer to the problem is not what caused the problem. The the, the problems we've got, we've been discussing in this in this discussion, has been the undesirable, unintended consequences that have resulted from misapplying technology to this cyclical system that that that, that is my farm. And uh, when I hear about uh, a person who doesn't know what to do with land, and who, who I believe is, is the only hammer he's got is technology, everybody looks like a male, then it's just disturbing to me. So I addressed it, and I'm unapologetic. I meant every word I said. You know, I stand by it. Um, you know, so that's just the way that is. I'm glad you stand by it. I think what you said was really important, and I think it's it's something we all needed to hear. And I I deeply appreciate your perspective on it. You know, I, it's not that I don't like Bill Gates. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like him if I knew him, but I don't know him. So this isn't about whether I like him or not. This is about, you know... I, I got one more for you. I know time is what time is, but... I so, have all the time in the world. It's your time I'm worried about. You know, so I'm going to tell you this. This, this is broad. So we, we buy land as often as we can. If it comes up local, doesn't doesn't happen much when it does. If we can afford it, we buy. And uh, about, about a year ago, uh, I bought a little small piece of land that, that adjoins my farm, just stand next to them. And I paid $1,950 an acre for it, which is what land brings here. That's, 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 that's where we are. Uh, I was on my way to the closing at the lawyer's office. I was listening to CNN on the radio, and they told me that gold was $2,040 an ounce. And an ounce of gold is worth more than an acre of land? Mm-hmm. That's fucked up. Yeah, wild. I mean, I, I can't even. They're both they're both non depreciating assets. Mm-hmm. You know, there aren't many non depreciating assets. No. Land, precious metals, precious gems, maybe art. Not much about art. Those are not, those are the few non depreciating assets that I know about. I don't think there are many others besides those. And, and your know, people invest in non depreciating assets uh, mostly as a parking place for money. Mm-hmm. So, so you can buy, if you, so your apartment, you can buy an acre of land or an ounce of gold. Now, an, an ounce of gold is better from the perspective of it's a little more liquid. You could sell it in a day, which the land may take a week or a month. And it's more transportable. You can put it in your pocket and go, go to France. But past that, an acre of land, you can add value to it. You don't just have to see if the market moves it up. You can actually do things to make it better. Uh, and, and there are many other reasons why it's a better investment. But the reason people pay more for an ounce of gold than an acre of land is, most people have no damn idea what to do with an acre of land. With an ounce of gold, anybody knows what to do. You can put it in your pocket, you can put it in the safe deposit box, you can wear it around your neck. So when they talk, start talking about Bill Gates buying land, it's offensive to me because he doesn't know what to do with it. And, you know, I, I realize he can hire 
a land manager, and I, I get all that. Yes. But it's very difficult for me to believe that, that that land will wind up in the hands of somebody that knows what to do with it. I agree, and I think that you can see his overarching philosophy and business and have that be a basis for concern. I wonder, as you said that, with land being one of the few non-depreciating asset classes, do you think that, let's say we purchase a a 2,000-acre parcel and it doesn't have any animal impact and we break it from all of those cycles and it begins to lose topsoil and it can't absorb water from rainfall? Is that depreciation? Uh, and the answer is, in, the, in, in our world, yes, it is. In the financial world, no, it's not. Right. To tell you another story. So, uh, I bought, uh, uh, this is a little different time, but I bought a little piece of land, same deal, beside mine, uh, borrowed money. So, I had, the bank, had to send an appraiser, professional licensed appraiser, uh, to, so I could borrow the money. And, and, you know, they picked the appraiser, and they picked the guy I didn't know. Some of those guys were really sharp, some of them are not. This guy was really sharp. He's an older guy that had done it, been it for a long time. And, uh, and I met with him and showed him the land. And he, uh, I said, I'll ask you a question. I said, uh, this, this parcel, I already, I've, I've owned, my family's owned for 150 years, five some organic model. You can see it, and it's highly productive. This land I'm buying, and I wanted it to have a high value. You know, I don't, you know, but I wasn't trying to talk him into it. I was just exchanging information. This land I'm buying, half percent organic model. I said, uh, how would you appraise this versus that? I'm not asking what the number is. How would you appraise this versus that? Said, Same thing. I said, you understand? He said, yeah, 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 yeah. I get it. I get it. I own land myself. I get it. But you understand, I am bound by the rules of, of how land needs to be appraised. And there's nothing no matter where you add value because it's or, or decreased value because it's degraded. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the answer to your question is, is two answers. To you and I, yes, land can be divided. In the financial world, not so much. I mean, it takes something extraordinary. Yeah. Sucks, don't it does. It does. Because I think, again, you know, when we're talking about incentivizing better practices and that, you know, that a lot of that there's a lot of incentivization to just grow crops and, and sell them to the government where you have this this easy this easy market that, that there's no incentive to build soil organic matter. And that is capital. That is wealth in for six generations from now. And so much of the land that's farmed is not owned by the farmer. It's leased land. And if you're if you're if you're caring for this land for the next generation and the next and the next, there's a there's a way you would manage it. If you're farming this land and you're trying to extract as much out of it as you can during this 12-month window, it's a very different management. Do you think being a sixth generation farmer or fifth generation farmer has changed that lens, like being connected to this place for over a hundred years through through your your family? Do you think that helps you have a more long term vision? Well, it, it, it does, but a, a greater uh, driver is the fact that you know, as I said earlier, I'm sixty seven, 
And everybody I know that's 67 years old is not dying, is retired. If they're not retired, they're looking for an exit strategy. Particularly if you're a business person that owns his own business. By 67, you're either dead, retired, or looking for a way out. You're entitled to sell this business or close it down, shut it down. But because I've got two daughters who are in their 30s, who are as passionate about it as I am, they're in it for 30 more years. So that empowers me to not look for an exit strategy, but to be making further investments for that. And, you know, and, and they got babies. One of my daughters had a baby night before last. I saw that. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And you, know, and you, know, you don't predict what a, 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 a juvenile generation is going to do but you want to create the opportunity, not the obligation, but the opportunity. And in my case, I have three dogs. Two of them came back here. And as I said, they're both 30-something years old. And, you know, they, you know, I, can, I can build a, a fence or a building that's going to have a 30-year life and, and feel good about it. Whereas if I thought I was going to have to liquidate my farm two years from now, I, I wouldn't make that investment. That really, that really changes that presence of the next generation and the next generation, their children after that. That must really change that lens. And, you know, and if my forefathers, I'm pointing at pictures of that, if my forefathers hadn't made those long-term investments, I wouldn't have had the opportunity to come back. We, we spent about $100,000 a year planting trees on the farm. I won't ever sit under them trees. No, I mean, I mean, it goes back to that adage that the best time to plant a tree is yesterday, right? And right, it's, right. It, it, it's not tomorrow because it's going to take. Time is now. Next yeah. Time is now. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And it's not. We won't see the fruits of this labor. And I think that there's. We have to change our entire system. And I think that linear system, the fruits of your labor, are that exit strategy. It is that that payment that you get by getting out. And when you build the fruits of your labor are there for somebody else to enjoy. They're the the peach tree that you plant today and that your grandchildren get to eat peaches from. I'm sitting on the tree. My my granddad, great granddad planted. Yeah. I think um I I mean I think this is a really beautiful place to begin to wrap up. And I just, I can't thank you enough. And I know that we didn't cover as much of White Oak's practices. I think that there are so many beautiful resources to learn about your practices. So I hope you don't feel that I missed that opportunity. I just, I've heard you talk a lot about that. There's some great YouTube videos that I'll point people in the direction of, but it was really nice to get to hear about this community piece. Well, it's, a, it's a good excuse for you to come see us and all these people that are listening, to them, if they want to know more, come see us. Well, I would, I, I think I, my husband and I would love to come down there, uh, especially during the winter and get a little bit warmer. I think that sounds nice. Uh, get out of the, get out of the negative 10 degree weather up here and. Yeah, um, uh, come in the summer, you, uh, you learn about humidity and heat and reptiles and insects and rodents. Well, I like that. Uh, my husband is a reptile enthusiast, I think I would say. I can make him happy. 
Yeah, I bet you can make him really happy. I think he comes to me once a week with a snake in hand. Look, look, babe, look what I found. You know, I mean, varying sizes, different snakes or whatever it is. So we would love to come down and just, I mean, put us to work. Well, thank you. Thank you again for your time. I'm really appreciative. You have a, you have a wonderful, wonderful day. And I'll, we'll link to all the places where people can find you. Thank you, Will. Uh, Really appreciate it. You too. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music.